Yeah, I think the biggest thing is just really slowing down and investing the time. Even though the person, if you're outsourcing, it may not seem like a lot of money. And so it's sort of tempting to just set up a document and provide it to them and say, okay, this is what I want you to do. Because it's not a big financial investment, but that doesn't mean that you still shouldn't invest that time to show them exactly what you want. And that's when you, that's when you get the best results. Welcome to Yaro's podcast, where you'll discover the stories behind world-class performers, business builders, and enlightened leaders. Can you believe it? This podcast started in the year 2005. It was one of the very first interview podcasts ever published, and I've loved doing it ever since the very start. However, the most important thing to me is the fact that you're here listening to my show. It means a lot to me. I put a lot of work into this and it's all for you. Now, whether you're a long-term listener or perhaps this is the first episode you've ever downloaded, make sure you subscribe if you have not done so already. It's easy to do. Just open up an app on your phone or perhaps your computer, wherever you listen to podcasts. Could be Apple or Google. Spotify, YouTube, and just click that subscribe button and you'll get all my latest episodes as I release them. Thanks again for listening. Hello, this is Yarrow and welcome to another exciting podcast episode. Today, I have a guest who came into my world just recently in a way that I've actually uh, surprisingly, never had someone introduce themselves to me. Uh, it's actually through this podcast that you're listening to right now. Now, over the years, there's been lots of lovely people who've said they've come across my my blogging work and the writing work, and it impacted them. But sadly, it doesn't happen as much on the podcast. So today's guest actually wrote me an email uh, saying just, A, thank you for uh, this podcast and being a listener, but then dropped some crazy background story and, and current story about what he's doing with a business uh, helping people in Venezuela to get work sort of like a you know a freelancer placement business but focused on the country of Venezuela and that to me was very special I thought given what you might know about the country you know that I've got some questions around that, that I'd love to know the answer to uh, but also that he's placed over 300 people in work so I'm really curious to learn more about that and of course all the background story of uh, the other entrepreneurial projects that my guest has uh, been through lived through so I'd like to introduce you guys to John Miles the founder currently of iworker.co hello John hi Euro thanks a lot for having me so uh, I briefly touched on a few of those things. Maybe you can fill out the details. So what exactly is iWorker? Sure. So we're, we're a placement agency or an employment agency. Our main focus, we started as a social enterprise. And what we do is we, we connect people primarily in Venezuela or Venezuelans both inside and outside Venezuela with work online. So uh, doing things, everything from customer service. We have people who develop websites, software development, all that sort of thing. And we started that because I, I actually live down in South America. I'm in Colombia right now, which is right next door to Venezuela. And when I started this business with my business partner, my now business partner, I was living down in Buenos Aires, Argentina. So we had sort of seen what was going on in Venezuela, and, and I can get a bit more into into that later. But we sort of we wanted to help out, and uh, and so saw an opportunity where we could connect people that both that we knew, but then also um, start reaching out to our networks and connect people who are really talented but just didn't have the opportunity 
at the work that, yeah, it's the opportunity to, to earn real good money back mm-hmm. in, uh, in Venezuela. Because you, you often hear outsourcing companies are hiring from the Philippines or India or Ukraine or Romania, yep. lots of places around the world, but I've never heard someone sourcing from Venezuela. And I thought, perhaps, you know, my ignorance here that because of the uh, instability of Venezuela with the inflation, the, the politics there, and even the infrastructure, I, I was thinking, is the internet stable enough to, for, for a person to work there? Um, I, yeah. know, I know you have people who are Venezuelan but not in Venezuela, but you know, it sounds like you have both. So you know, how do you find it, it is working with people when their whole life situation might be under threat, basically? Yeah, yeah. So that that's a really good question. So the internet is is fairly reliable and it's sort of similar to if you're hiring from Asia. Like I've been actually outsourcing. I started hiring my first remote workers I think it was 13 years ago. I started a software company 13 years ago and and I was hiring doing the traditional thing where you hire from from Asia. So I think I had a graphic designer in I think it was Indonesia. And then actually I hired a software developer from Mexico. But I, I found that when you're outsourcing, you're not always going to have perfect internet. And that's Venezuela is probably similar to the Philippines or similar to India. So it's not as good as we have in North America, but it certainly, certainly is doable. So we've been in business for two years. Uh, as you mentioned there, we have over 300 workers. Uh, it's probably approaching 350 at this point. And we have almost 600 clients now and, and people have been with us since day one. So certainly the internet, the internet is good enough to, uh, to get the job done. And the reason for that actually sort of one interesting and sad thing about Venezuela is Venezuela was the most wealthy country in Latin America, not that long ago. So I have friends who are from Venezuela and hearing their stories and actually our business partner Enrique, who we made a partner in the business. He's from Venezuela. He grew up there and he just left uh, it's probably about a year ago. And so hearing his stories, he's like, yeah, like back in the nineties, it was, it was a wealthy country. Like you'd, you'd be like Caracas was an international city. And so to now hear and see like what's going on there is, is incredible, but they do have, yeah, they do have reasonable infrastructure as much as like some parts of it are crumbling and like the banking systems has serious problems and it's really hard to get public transit. Even still, like you can get cell phones and you can get, yeah, you can get cell phone data we have some workers who do some work through their cell phone if they have an issue with uh, the internet at home. But yeah, more or less people can get by. I can imagine even the simple task of paying someone in Venezuela is a challenge. I, I've had issues yeah. with that in Ukraine because PayPal is not accepted as a receiving method of money there. Uh, yeah. So how, how do you get? Like, how do you pay your staff in in Venezuela? So yeah, you hit the nail on the head. It is actually tricky. Um, so we we've got a few options that we give workers. And so they, and, and for different people in different areas, like one option might work better than the other. And actually in a lot of cases, like we send them an electronic transfer and then they have to go in and exchange that for cash in the street. And they pay, in some cases, like they pay a pretty exorbitant fee uh, in interest to get, just to be able to take that money out. So it's sort of a sad situation. And we're constantly looking at like, what can we do to get money in people's hands more easily. And so, yeah, we, we provide, we provided a few different options and it's, and it's constantly changing. So what works one day might not work. Yeah. The next day because right. the regulations change and, and all that sort of thing. So it, it is a tricky process, but basically it comes down to giving people a few options and just letting them choose what's best for them. Yeah. I, I, as funny as it sounds and it's probably not 
that funny, but I, I suspect it happens in Venezuela. But it happened for me in Ukraine to purchase a property there. It was like, bring a bag of cash. Uh, yeah. And that's, that's what I ended up. Not, obviously, it's not $400,000 property, it's, but you're still carrying, uh, like you go to your bank and you withdraw the money, you p- put it in a paper bag. <laughs> that sounds so yeah, dodgy. And you carry it to the crazy. lawyer or notary and you do the deal and you bought a property. And that's just the way they prefer to do it because they don't trust the, you know, the banks or the government and so on. Yeah, so it's it's actually becoming that's becoming a huge problem in Venezuela because the inflation rate it's sort of you see different estimates, but it's it's estimated between five hundred thousand percent a year to over like over a million percent a year, and so it's the highest right now. Venezuelans Venezuela is going through the worst inflation that the world has seen, I think, in a couple decades. It's absolutely crazy, and so yeah, like it's you can see you can see articles about this online where. People have to, and I've, I've heard the stories from people that I know, where they, exactly that, they have to carry bags of cash, but not to buy a property. That's to go and buy bread at the store. Right. And then also just getting that cash. Like In a lot of cases, you'll have to go and wait for several hours in line at the bank just to withdraw money. And the bank limits how much money you can take out. So I actually read an article by a correspondent in CNN, by C- yeah, a correspondent from CNN who's living in Venezuela, and he said he waited four hours to take out cash and it was worth less than a U.S. dollar. That the, with like with the limit, he was able to take out ten thousand wow. Venezuelan boulevards, and that was worth less than a dollar. And what he couldn't even buy a coffee with that. So people have to hit the bank in some cases every day, or hit multiple banks in a day, and spend the better part of their day waiting in line. It's crazy. I don't know. I don't know how the banks even function under that system. I remember hearing um, Bitcoin or, or a cryptocurrency had become an option too. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So one of our partners is Uphold. They reached out to us because we'd actually been sending a lot of money to Venezuela. And they said, oh, like it would be interesting to partner up and, and see if we can use you as a case study of, of how we can use our services to get people get money in people's hands. Because a big focus for them is, uh, is Bitcoin. So yeah, that's one of the options that we provide is, uh, is using Uphold and people accepting the money in Bitcoin. Yeah, that's certainly uh, something down there. I am curious being a an ex-cryptocurrency trader kind of guy for one year yeah. anyway. I always wanted to see a actual utility purpose, you know, a daily usage of of crypto. Now that to me sounds like one of the best examples of where it's really helping. But could you for the sake of myself and the listener just play out a story so you have a contractor who works for someone in the United States, they yeah. get charged in US dollars, then how do you get them the Bitcoin and then how do they then use that to buy the bread in Venezuela? Yeah, so so we receive the money. Then we we give, as I say, we give the worker the option how they want to receive it. If they want to receive it in U.S. dollars in their uphold account or they want to receive it in Bitcoin. And during that part of the process, there's no, what's nice is there's no transaction fees. There's no exchange fees, anything like that. And if we're using a, a different service that has transaction fees, we cover them. Um, so the worker's not being penalized Yeah, as much as we can control. But then the problem, that's where the problem starts is, They've got to go and find somebody, and they're all they're all unofficial unofficial exchanges, and they've got to go find somebody in the street. So they maybe find this person on on Instagram or on Twitter or on Facebook, uh, and that's super common. And so you you connect with that person, and you go, and they've got their rate that they'll give you Venezuelan boulevards at, and then you're paying a significant fee, and it's honestly it's as high as twenty five percent. So it's super sad because. Oh. People have a hard enough time getting by, and then yeah, and then they've got to pay twenty five percent just to withdraw the money. Um, and we also have stories like 
unfortunately, we have stories of like our workers getting robbed when they've gone to exchange money with people in the street. So okay. it's just, it, it's a really, really tough situation. And we do what we can to, to try and make it as smooth as possible. And as I said, like we're looking at trying to see if we can source some reliable people where we say to the workers, okay, we've negotiated a good rate with this one person. Uh, they're reliable in so far as we can tell. And so if you want to go to this person, you'll get, you'll get this particular rate. And we hope that you're not going to have as much risk as you would have just going to somebody randomly. Mm. But yeah, it's, it's a really difficult situation. But just to, to, to go back to what you're saying about a practical use of Bitcoin, we actually we do have some workers in, uh, in Zimbabwe as well. Uh, Zimbabwe has a huge inflation rate. And um, that's another place where Bitcoin is quite popular, uh, just because of the inflation rate. And, and it's just so it's a it's a stable, it's a stable way for people to hold their money so that it's not eroding every day, eroding as much as Bitcoin might erode in a day. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you're taking on some some fluctuation risk there. But yeah. that's a whole nother theme. Okay, interesting. Now, I think the listeners can tell and I'm, I can tell, you're picking a hard task here, John. Um, just just in the logistics of setting up a company and and helping people to get work. So you know you're not making it easy for yourself by choosing places like Zimbabwe and Venezuela. And as we mentioned briefly at the start, this is a social enterprise in the sense that you've chosen to do this not necessarily to make a lot of money yourself, but to try and help people in these in these countries and obviously yeah. help other people um, with good talented workers. Now. One of the things I know when I first saw your website was seeing the the starting price of five ninety five per hour. Yeah. Now I remember uh, many many years ago when I first uh, was introduced to this idea of outsourcing, probably around you know the four hour work week craze or even before that, people were saying you know hire a Filipino for five dollars an hour, hundred dollars a month sort of rates and things like that, and, and there was a lot of excitement around that. But then there was part of me and, and lots of other people said this too, but how on earth are they living off that kind of money? Or how does that, you know, work for them? Obviously it's a great deal for us with countries with strong currencies who are making money in US dollars. Um, mm-hmm. but on the flip side. So could you maybe just touch on like how that does translate to a, a person in Venezuela or Zimbabwe or these places? Because I know that's your base price and you go all the way up to uh, thirteen ninety five as your your top yeah. rate, which is Crazy expensive? No, it's not. It's very, very cheap. So, yeah. how does it all play out for for the the freelancer? Yeah. So there are a couple parts of that. So first thing, because we started this as a social enterprise, my business partner and I said, okay, we're gonna we're gonna take a small margin just to run the business. We're gonna keep it low, and we've never moved it since day one. So my business partner had a couple online businesses, and he had done well there. And when I left Canada and moved down to South America about two and a half years ago, I had just sold my stake in a few businesses and, and I had done okay. And so we we started this with with that financial freedom. We didn't need to do this to make a ton of money. So that's part of it is just that our margins low. We're super, super focused on running like a really lean business. So even at the point we're at where we have a lot of workers, uh, hundreds of workers, we've got hundreds of, of clients, we're still running our bookkeeping in Google Sheets, for instance, just so that we're not paying fees to link up Stripe and bookkeeping software and all that sort of thing. But the bigger part of that is just that money goes a long way in countries like Venezuela, other parts of South America where we have workers that have left Venezuela and are living. So that might be Nicaragua. And so it's I, I hesitate to say exact numbers, 
because the the numbers with the inflation rate being so high, the numbers change and it's hard. It's sort of a moving target. But really, like what we can afford to pay a worker in an hour is in a lot of cases what people make in a day back in Venezuela. So it just that that's what it comes down wow. to is it's a, it's an opportunity that they don't have earning U.S. dollars and not having to worry about that. The second they get paid, that money eroding is hugely powerful. And then it's just, yeah, that money, that money, even though it doesn't seem like a lot to us, goes a long way there. Mm. Okay, well, that, that's reassuring. I think, you know, some people might have felt a sense of guilt or exploitation sometimes paying only $6 an hour to a person yeah. to, to, you know, to work an entire day and, and, and make whatever it is, $25 or $30 or something like yeah. that. Well, what, what I can say to that point is that we've had workers that have been with us since day one. We've had lots, a good portion of our workers have come in as referrals from friends. So we have people reach out to us all the time and say, hey, like I, I'm friends with Maria. She told me about her work with you. Do you, have any, uh, do you have any positions for me? We've even had family. We had, yeah, we've had family refer like their sisters and brothers and all that sort of thing, cousins. So yeah, that, that lets me know that, okay, we're treating people well because people have been with us for two years and then the amount of referrals we're getting. So, mm. yeah. That actually leads me to another question. Uh, given the geographic distance between Zimbabwe, Venezuela, I know obviously we're a connected world, but you're still needing yeah. to find people on the ground. Like, how are you managing? Because I know from my, as a personal example, running um, Inbox Done with, with my co founder, Claire. There's obviously a stream of people looking for work, and then there's a you know a certain stream of people looking to hire. But it's a fine balance to find yeah. you know fill a need as it comes in sometimes, and vice versa. So how yeah, do you, yeah. how have you managed that? How do you find someone in Zimbabwe at the same time you're living in you know uh, I know it's like you're in Colombia when we're talking yeah. to you now, and then you've got people in Venezuela. How is this like? Do you have a underground network of, of people, or what's the what's the the strategy there? We, we do more so in South America because I'm, yeah, I'm currently in Colombia. I spend, I spend probably two thirds, three quarters of my year in South America between Colombia and then a bit in, uh, in Buenos Aires. And then my business partners, uh, Jeb and then Enrique now, who we made partner in the business. They're also in South America and Argentina. And then Enrique, as I say, is from Venezuela. So we have friends from Venezuela. In all of these countries, Enrique has a pretty pretty extensive network back home. So that helps a lot. Um, it just, A, in terms of uh, referrals and being able to connect with people on Facebook and all that sort of thing. But it also gives us an idea of, okay, what websites do people use in Venezuela to find work? Uh, and then as it's expanded, so we, we started with Venezuela. We've now, we've now focused or sorry, we continue to focus on Venezuela, but we do have some workers in other countries, but we continue to focus on countries that are going through economic crisis and are in in, in need and sort of can benefit from this type of work. So 80% of our workers are Venezuelans, but we have workers in Nicaragua, we have workers in Haiti, we have workers in Zimbabwe, Kenya. And as we find workers in those countries, we have conversations with them and say, okay, where else, if you were looking for for workers, for more workers, where like where do you recommend that we uh, we look and we put ads and all that sort of thing? So yeah, it, it's constantly evolving. But you're right that it is like a fine balance. Like we'll have yeah, we'll have like tons of clients and not enough workers, but then we've got to go back and rebalance and, and push hard on recruiting to uh, to fill the need and all that sort of thing. So yeah, it's a it's a delicate balance and it's certainly a lot of work. So for the people listening to this who are going five ninety five an hour. I, I can definitely afford that, and I'd love to start yeah. hiring uh, some people to work with. 
Maybe a couple of questions here. What's the sort of general types of services that you find you, you guys are really good at helping people with? But yeah. also, you know, just simple questions like English. Could you hire someone to, to write English documents or is it more technical work? Like what's the, what's the skill level in terms of communication? And also technical skill, like who have you got on staff or who can you get available to people? Yeah, yeah. So there's sort of a couple, a couple answers to that. So because we have several hundred workers, the majority of our workers are actually college, university educated, which is, which is incredible. And then we also are pretty focused or very focused on hiring people that have advanced level English. So as much as we do this as a social enterprise, I'm an entrepreneur. My business partner is an entrepreneur. We realize that, okay, you need to, you need to have good people. Um, if we're not providing good people, this whole thing is not going to work. So we've had over 5,000 people apply with us and we've hired between 300, 350. So that allows us to be, because we're very particular, that allows us to hire workers that are advanced level English and generally are college university educated and, and are pretty skilled. So we have workers, believe it or not, we have workers, we have one person who's a lawyer and she can translate legal documents between Spanish and English. We have a couple people that are actual medical doctors. So the quality of workers is quite high. The types of work that people hire us for, a lot of it is things like customer service, social media. So that can be planning social media campaigns, that can be posting content, that can be creating content, so photos and video editing and that sort of thing. And then, let's see, we have a lot of people that hire our workers for doing lead generation types of things. Um, so outreach on LinkedIn is popular. Yeah, those would be some of the bigger areas, sales types of types of tasks. But yeah, as I say, video editing is, is one that's quite popular. But we have workers that do, we do have workers that do cold calling. We have workers that do copywriting. So those would be, the copywriting would be either the most advanced level people where English is their second language, but they've, uh, we have some examples of people who have grown up in the States until they're 14, 15 years old. So their English is super advanced. And so they're able to do that copywriting. We have some copywriters that are native English speakers that live in some countries in the Caribbean, for instance. Mm, okay. Well, I feel like we've given a, a fantastically detailed explanation of what iWorker is. So those of you listening and you're really excited about hiring someone, iWorker.co, first place to go. Obviously, you can get in touch with John and we'll share some more links for you at the end of the, the show as well. When I met John, it just happened to be a time where I was looking for a developer as well. So I asked John if that's something he could help with. And I have a project that I wouldn't say is um, typical, but it's, it's not that complicated, but it is a development project. And uh, he's a, within a week, he's assigned me a developer and I've just started working with him. So I feel like you could basically take anyone. Like I could send you anyone who's got any need in terms of freelancers and you possibly could find someone for them. I know I don't want to put the onus on you to, to do that, but I feel like it, you could at least ask you, you know, can you yeah. find someone to help me do this? And you could go for look. sure. Yeah. And I've actually been surprised. Like we've had people come to us and say, Oh, do you have anyone who's worked for a big four accounting firm that can do accounting? And I, and I thought in my head, I'm like, probably not. Like that's really, really specific. And then I asked uh, Enrique because he he manages our, our database of workers, and he's like, "Oh yeah, actually, we do have somebody." So I'm even shocked, like sometimes with with the level of workers and just sort of like the specific skills. So yeah, yeah we do have people that do that do tons of different things, and we're big on we're really big on customer service and just being honest with people. And so if we have somebody that we're that we're like, okay, yeah, this person could be the right fit, but maybe not. We we encourage people to jump on a call with the worker and, and ask that worker questions and. There's no, yeah, there's no sort of obligation mm -hmm. there. And yeah. um, we're big on the exploratory process to set people up with the right people. 
Okay, that's awesome. One huge pitch for iWorker there, but I think it was worth it. And uh, I also think it's it's a great cause there. You're helping people in some from difficult places around the world, and they're they're talented. And for us entrepreneurs, it's a, a way to get some help at a very reasonable rate. So check it out now. There's a lot of questions I now have, uh, John, about you <laughs> because yeah. you've obviously set up a, a fairly large company here. But uh, there's a natural curiosity for everyone knowing that this is this is a social enterprise too. You know how are you paying for your own bills and what happened in your life previously? So can we go back in time? Are you uh, where are you born and raised? So I I grew up just outside of Toronto. So I'm Canadian. I was in Canada up until two and a half years ago. And I, right out of university, I went to business, or I took business uh, in university. I got involved in a couple businesses. I started a small, uh, small software company right out of school, which is where I started outsourcing um, when I hired the software developer and the graphic designer. But then also during that time, I was part owner of a craft brewery. Oh, okay. And Slow new- down. Too much happening here. Oh, sure, sure, sure. <laughs> okay, I started this business and this one and this one. Uh, yeah. Okay, so first of all, you're, you're in school, you're, yeah. you're doing a business degree. Obviously, you're entrepreneurial from day one. So were you planning, uh, like in your mind, graduation, start company, get rich? Was that what you were thinking? Probably. It was a long time ago, but that's probably exactly what I was okay. thinking. Yeah. I, I was always yeah, I was always interested in business, even though even even before university, yeah. Okay. Can and can we uh, obviously you don't wanna you don't have to share your, your age, but it does help to know what era we were in when you graduated. Like when you're graduating from university, were you seeing like a, a lot of opportunities in a certain space because of you know social media was growing or something was growing? Like what what brought you to start a software company as your project then? Yeah, yeah. So I'll tell you, I'm 37 years old. So back then, right out of university, I started working for for a guy who had a fairly large size real estate company, and I was helping out manage the real estate for that company. And we were doing, we were signing a lot of leases. It was student housing, and so like the the lease signing period is is very condensed. Like it's maybe a month for the whole year, and so we were signing tons of leases. And and so I said, okay, I'm going to start a business on the side where Instead of us going and signing these leases in person, we're going to sign them online, and it's just going to save us probably an hour every time. Every time we do it, so that's that was my first sort of official business. So I started that on the side, and we started using that within the real estate company that I was working for, and then I was able to sell those services to some other similar types of companies. So that's when I hired the software developer from Mexico, and I hired a graphic designer to help lay out the site. So yeah, that was that was the first step. What was the name of that company? Was it? It's called Digilease. Digilease. Oh, I actually could use that right now in Montreal. I'll have to see if they're are they still in operation? Are they covering French Canada? Uh, I, I think. Yeah, I think it still is. It was. Yeah, I, I know when I checked last, like a year ago, it was still operating and had signed. Yeah, I think it was a hundred thousand people had, had signed leases on it or something. So. So when you when you start this software business, obviously you're a student, so you don't have a ton of money to pour into it. Can you just explain yeah. how it grew and did it become a full time income source for you, or what happened? So it, I was very careful about the money that, that I was putting into it. And then also my mentor and, and boss at the real estate company invested in the business. And he put in the first sort of round of funding into it and so that they were able to use, to use the services for free. So no, it never became a full source of income. Like I made a bit of money off of it and, uh, and when I sold it. But I continued to work for him doing that real estate, uh, that real estate work and then also invested in him uh, invested with him in some other projects that he was or businesses that he was buying. So 
Uh, as I mentioned, one was a craft brewery, and then the other one was a newspaper company. So were you saving your salary from working with in real estate with him to be able to yeah. afford to go into these kind of that's a, that to me yeah, sounds like yeah. a you're buying a brewery is not a small chunk of change, I'm guessing. That's that's a bricks and mortar kind of business. Right, right. Yeah, I was I was a good saver. Okay. I was a good saver. So you obviously were very, very close with your boss too, so that he he, yeah. he wanted to get you to invest. So okay. So you buy a brewery. <laughs> yeah. uh, did you did you do anything with the brewery? Were you like part of the operations of that or yeah, yeah. So I was I was managing the brewery more or less for for a couple of years, as well as a couple of the, uh, the newspapers that we uh, owned. Which papers did you get? I, I can't I can't say the names uh, of them for okay. privacy reasons. Fair yeah, enough. but they were small. They were small community newspapers in Ontario. Okay, cool. So that's quite a diverse range of areas. So brewery, newspaper management, and software to do lease signing. Yeah. Uh, and it sounds like you were involved in all three in in some shape or form. That's I guess in some ways that could be a lot of fun for an entrepreneur. You get to play with a, diff- a whole bunch of different businesses. But was that all happening like at one time, or did you know one lead to another, lead to another? And obviously you've got a team, I'm assuming, around you for each business to some degree yeah. as well, right? Yeah, yeah. So the first was the real estate, and then and then we moved into the brewery uh, and the newspapers around the same time. I was less focused on the real estate. Much less focused and, and way more focused on the brewery and the newspapers for the last half of, of sort of my career time in uh, back in Canada. So for about five six years, was more focused on growing and running the uh, the newspapers and the brewery. How did you find going from working real estate and building the software for real estate, which that to me makes sense because you can use the software to just help your existing customer base. When you yeah. buy a brewery and you take over that business, I wouldn't even begin to know how to get a customer for a brewery. I'm assuming you got to get your beer into a fridge in all the stores exactly. you know, around the place. Yeah. So like, how, how did you find learning a whole different business model and making that work? Yeah, so the the brewery was pretty simple. So actually, actually, all of the businesses were pretty simple because, like, with the brewery, we bought a brewery that was already exist that already existed. It was I think twelve years old at the time. So they had their distribution system in place. They were in the LCBO for people in Ontario will know what that is, and then the beer store. And in Ontario, especially, like it's a really simple distribution system. Like you, at that time, you had the LCBO, you had the beer store, and then and that, and, oh, and then you'd sell through bars and restaurants. So it's sort of a is pretty simple business, just trying to sell to those three channels. So for us, like we bought that business, and then we just focused on trying to trying to increase the sales and just get more people on the road to to hit those stores and bars and restaurants. Did do work? Yeah, yeah, it grew. It grew. It is a tough. Is a really tough business because. The, the craft beer business is, is one of those businesses. I, I like it's a sexy business. So everybody, not everybody, but a lot of guys who have some money want to, it's sort of a dream to have a craft brewery. And so when we, when our brewery first started, I think it was a 27th brewery in Ontario. And now I believe there are over 300. So it just became really, really competitive to, because it's limited shelf space, limited space in bars and restaurants. So yeah, it's it's actually it's a tough business. I, I can imagine you and your boss were were sitting having a beer one day, saying we should we should own a beer, and and then you decide, yeah, let's do it, let's go buy a, a beer. Did that sort of thing happen? Or <laughs> no, no, I think he he's the one he's the one who found out about the brewery through I, I don't even know how, but he found out it was up for sale, and okay. yeah, it was sort of his his idea. And I said, well, yeah, you, I, I trust you. I've worked with you at that point for six years. I'm like, whatever you think is a good investment, I'm I'm in. So. 
Okay. Now, you don't have to talk numbers, but I'm guessing, you know, you're not able to plop down millions of dollars yourself from a salary as a real estate agent, unless, I mean, you could have, I guess, but at your age, the time, I'm guessing that wasn't likely. Um, were you, in your mind, are you thinking, like, what was your goal for the future? Was it, was it to make enough money to retire? Were you starting to get itchy feet? You wanted to travel? Did you want to start your own business? Like, what were you thinking as, as you're working with your, your business partner boss? So I really enjoyed it. Like he has been and, and continues to be really successful. So for me, it was an, an awesome opportunity. When I first started working with him in the real estate, that his company was much smaller. So I was one of the earlier employees that he had. And so I got lucky just in terms of the timing. Like I was, I was able to, to learn a lot with him, work closely with him. And as he bought the other businesses, he, because we had that trust, he put me in a position to operate operate the businesses and, and have a lot of autonomy. So it was really awesome because I had the security of, of a salary, but at, at the same time, like I had the whole entrepreneurial aspect of being able to have say in the businesses and, and steer the direction and all that sort of thing. So I really, really enjoyed that. But then it was actually, I, I told you this when I first got in touch, but you were one of the inspirations for me because I had thought, okay, well, this is awesome and, and things are going well. But I, I did get that itch for doing something different because it had been 11, 12 years of, of sort of focusing on the same things. And then also the brick and mortar was tying me down. And I felt like, and four hour work week is one good example. Of, like that inspired me to, to say, well, yeah, it would be cool to travel the world and, and have that freedom. And I think it was the membership site master plan, which I listened to by you. And I remember being in the brewery, like super, super clear as day. I remember listening to that. And it inspired me to say like, you know what, like maybe it isn't so hard if I wasn't doing this stuff, like I've got a bit of money saved up. I, I think I could sort of make it for a while without having to worry about, about making a ton of money and maybe I could start an online business. So that was one of the big, big sort of like sparks for me that, that inspired me to sort of make that life transition. And I'm glad to hear that. It always makes me feel a little strange that someone was listening to my voice like all, all those years ago, who I don't know, who I know now. It's such a yeah. surreal thing. But take us forward. So you, you're getting excited about uh, digital nomad business, I guess the best way yeah. to put it. You were clearly well entrenched in at least two or three businesses there. So it's a big decision to make a move. What, what did you plan on like launching something online first and then making it work and then travel or what was the plan? So no, that's probably what I should have done. <laughs> like I, I, I've made some, I've made some, some certainly decisions that I wouldn't have necessarily done the same thing going back. Yeah, no, I sort of made, I made a leap and because I've got a good network with my family and I knew I had to come like, okay, I'm not going to run into like too many problems. If I burn through all my money, like I'm not going to end up in the street. So that gave me confidence. My parents are really supportive. So I actually just took a leap. I had a discussion with my, with my boss and business partner and he ended up buying all of the businesses off me, he bought my shares back in the newspapers and the craft brewery. And he bought the software company off, off me. And I was able to, that put me on a, on a pretty secure financial footing um, where I was able to move down to South America and not have to worry about uh, about a source of income. So it allowed me to play around. At first, I started a blog, which was going okay. It was getting some traffic, but I didn't have a great way of monetizing it. And then I ended up running into meeting my my now business partner, Jeb, uh, at a cafe. And we were we would work out of the same cafe. He was working on his online businesses, and I was working on trying to start something new. And then we just got the idea for this, and and it sort of took off from there. I'm curious with 
exiting all those companies with your your prior boss, was there an option to possibly retain ownership and just take like some kind of dividends from it, or did you want a clean break? Like, what? Why did you decide to sell? Yeah, so I I did actually retain ownership in the brewery until just a few months ago. Okay. But wrapping up the wrapping up my shares in the other businesses was so that I could have that have that cash and be able to. Yeah, I just have that liquidity essentially. Okay. Um, yeah, and then as as this business grew and and this has become like a huge focus, I just I said okay, like I don't have any any attention to dedicate to the brewery, and so it just made the most sense to wrap that up as well uh, a couple months ago. Okay, so take us with, forward with um, with Jeb. So you guys are you meet in the cafe? Did you just hit it off as as fellow digital nomads, or what was the connection there? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we had actually, I think we'd seen it, seen each other out at like a, I don't know, like a networking event or something like that. And then we, like the the expat community in Buenos Aires, which is where we were, is not massive. So we were hanging out in similar circles and we knew similar people. So I remember running to running into him at a cafe once, and and we were working. Uh, so I I sat down and we started talking, and I asked him a little bit more about what he was working on. Yeah, I was super interested in what he was doing, and and he was interested in in my backstory, and so we became friends, and and would frequently work from the same place. But it wasn't for a few months until we really started having a conversation, and and because he had he had done well financially, and he had done a really good job of of building his businesses so that they were pretty hands off. So we were both in a position where we had some time to play around with, and said, well, yeah, maybe we can start this business and and help out. Because we had, we were seeing like very viscerally what was going on in Venezuela. We had Venezuelan friends that had had fled and were living in Buenos Aires and heard their stories, and we just said like, yeah, it'd be nice if we could do something to help help these people because they're super talented. And we said like, we, we sort of realized we're in a unique position because we've got our foot in both worlds. Like we're entrepreneurs from back in North America, so we can connect with people there. We know how to speak that language. And we've got that credibility because we both run successful businesses. And at the same time, we're living down in South America and we have friends from Venezuela and we've got connections and we speak Spanish. I speak a little bit. It's not great, but enough to get by. And so we can develop, like potentially we can develop this business and just try and help people do, do a little bit to help the economic crisis, essentially. Mm. How do you start a business like that? Do you, do you set up a website and hope people find it or do you, do you find your first worker and then try and find them a client? Like what, what happened? Yeah, so I'm trying to think back. What did we do exactly? So I, I will say, like, from my the lesson I learned from my software business, because I did it the complete wrong way. I built the business. I spent whatever it was, twenty thousand dollars on development and all that, and I didn't have any customers. So, so I've learned. I've learned that for me, the best thing to do is what they say, like the minimum viable product. So we didn't have a website for the six, first six months. We just started connecting people. So at first, I think we, Jeb had some workers from Venezuela that were working with him and his online business that had some extra time free. So he said, okay, I've got some friends back home who are running businesses that are successful businesses and pr- could probably use workers with these similar skills. So yeah, we, we first started just making those super informal connections. So we didn't have a business registry. We didn't have a website, but we said, yeah, let's see if we can help these people like fill up their, fill up the workers schedule. So they're getting the full-time work that they're working, that they're looking for. And that just went really well. We had, it went really well on the, on the worker side and then on the client side as well. We had more people reaching out to us from back in, 
uh, back in Canada and just saying, hey, do you have any other workers who, who have similar types of skills down there? We'd, we'd be interested. Mm. Do you remember the first placement? Do you remember like, because you would have had to learn how do I communicate with the client? Like, when do I step in? When, when do I hand over? How yeah. much do we charge? You know, all those questions. Do you remember that sort of learning that with the first person? Yeah, yeah. So the first, the first person was a really good friend of mine, and it was for it was for like a sales outreach type of role. So doing research and then also calling, and so I had a lot of uh, I had a lot of room to to sort of make mistakes because he was one of my best friends. So I knew that he wasn't going to yell at me if things didn't go right. So yeah, it was it was a lot of like not knowing what we should charge, and we were yeah, not knowing what we should charge, and like how do we work it? Do we charge by the week? Um, do we charge by the hour? That sort of thing. So. For, for us, like the key or what worked out well was just dealing with people that we knew back home so that if we got things wrong, which we, which we did, the consequences weren't going to be too high. And on the flip side, like how were you finding people locally at the start? Because I understand once your network's grown, you know, it's yeah. easier. But the, do you just like sit at a cafe and talk to your neighbor and go, oh, you, you happen to have skills in, in sales calls. And uh, I've got a friend back in Canada who needs someone to do sales calls. Like, is that yeah. how that worked? or? Sort of. Enrique, Enrique was at this point living in, in Buenos Aires. So he, Enrique had started working as a VA for Jeb in Jeb's, one of Jeb's online businesses. And with that income, it allowed Enrique and his wife, they were about to have a baby and it allowed them the stability to leave Venezuela and to move to Buenos Aires because they were actually, they were going to have a baby and it was just really hard for them to find, like there were medicine shortages and all that sort of thing. And they just said, this is not a great place to have a, have a newborn. Mm -hmm. So, so they had, they had moved to Buenos Aires. And then as we started talking about this business, Enrique was excited by the idea of it and said, like, hey, I can help out with that. Like, I think this is an, an awesome cause, obviously, that meant something to him. And he said, I know people back home, like I've got connections back home and I can connect you with people that would be uh, that would be great workers. So the first the first part of it was more like the networking informal thing. But then as we went, Enrique was able to say, well, yeah, this is a site where people look for, for work at back in Venezuela. And this is another site. So we, we did a mix of both networking, but then putting job postings on sites and, and seeing what worked. And when you say sites, is it like, like a Craigslist for Venezuela? Yeah, is yeah. That, that, that sort of thing? Yeah, so there are a few like Craigslist. We tried putting ads on Facebook with some mixed success. There are some other sites that are more like local sites in Venezuela as well. So yeah, it was a mix. And, and we, we've tried different things over over the last couple of years and focus on different areas and, and some things will work for a while and then they'll stop working. So yeah, we're always adjusting. So as the business grew, I imagine scaling is a little tricky. Can you think back to, I don't know, the first time where you needed to hire management type people, you know, Enrique, I can see you've got yourself and Jeb and Enrique as, yeah. as a sort of management to start with. But at some point, I can, like now you've got 300, 350 staff and 600 plus customers, whatever it was. I think that's right. That's a lot of people to organize or at least stay in touch with and communicate yeah. and manage. So during the early days, when you get to 10 clients or 20 clients, at what point did you start to expand your team and what, who did you hire first? Yeah. So I remember super vividly. Because when we started this, like we we were we were both focused on other things. I was running my blog, and Jeb had his other businesses. So we were working like an hour or two a week for the first whatever three four months, um, and it was growing and it was growing. But it just at one point I don't know it just it seemed to explode. And I remember we were working. We got to the point where we were working seven days a week on this business. And and one Saturday night I remember coming home 
coming home from a restaurant and going and answering emails at midnight on Saturday night because we had so many incoming emails. And then Sunday morning waking up and I cleared out all the emails and Sunday morning woke up and there were 18 more emails because we have customers in Australia now and in Europe and all that sort of thing. And that was at the point where I just said, okay, this is not sustainable. Like this isn't what we had and what we had in mind for spending all of our time doing. Like we can't just do this, Jeb and Rita and I. So we ended up hiring somebody to help out answering emails um, and that turned into two people and three people. So a huge part of the internal staff that we've that we've hired has just been focused on doing customer service and uh, and handling all the inquiries. Okay, so I mean, take us forward. That it's only been two years. You guys have grown quite rapidly. What does it look like today in terms of your your internal staff, like who works for the actual iWorker company, and then of course you know you've got all your people working for your clients. Yeah, so we've got, let me see here, I think we have four people answering, just dedicated to answering emails, so customer service and, and onboarding and, and all that sort of thing. And we have one person doing recruitment, and we're probably going to bring on a second pretty soon. And then we have two or three people doing outreach, so helping out on the sales side and just handling leads and all that mm. sort of thing. Okay, so it's still quite elegant. You've really come up with a, an elegant business model to manage so many people. I'd love to, like, if we're going to pass on some insights to people listening who are, you know, maybe they don't necessarily want to do the social enterprise, uh, and maybe they do, yep. but even just to run a services-based business and they love the idea of sourcing local talent and helping yeah. those people. Uh, obviously, I've, I've with my co-founder, Claire, we, we run a similar model, but we're hiring more American-based, but same yeah. idea, selling services. What have you found has been the most important aspect to make it work and maybe even some pitfalls to look out for that you didn't see at the start that you now know very well are kind of dangerous for someone running this kind of business? Yeah, so the pitfalls for for running this kind of business and I think any business is losing focus. Um, so a lot of entrepreneurial people, and I'm certainly guilty of this, have so many ideas and it's easy to sort of ignore what's working. Like you get excited and you're like, oh, well, if this is working, what if we, what if we did this thing? And that's fine and it's, it's good to try new things, but it's also easy to fall off track and, and lose focus on the things that are working. So I think that's, that's one lesson I've learned. Another thing which I touched on and, and is sort of evident here is just staying lean. So really like keeping the cost low. And that's both for running a social enterprise, but even any sort of business. Because if you're if you're burning too much money and and your runway runs out, as they say, like you can't. Even if you have the best idea in the world, if you can't last long enough to to see it to fruition, well, it doesn't mean anything. So just really being hyper focused on keeping costs low and saying, okay, if we're going to try out this, we're going to try out this idea. How can we do it as lean as possible, both in terms of the money that we're spending and then in terms of the time we're spending. So not doing what I did where I spent several years sort of developing the software before really trying to sell it and, and have an idea if people wanted to buy it. And then in terms of, in terms of sort of the, the systematizing side and the staffing side, this goes for whether or not you're outsourcing or you're hiring like I was doing brick and mortar, like office, people to work in the office is just really investing the time and setting up good systems. So building the systems first and breaking down everything that they need to do into its component parts and laying that out in very, very good detail and spending the time to train the worker. So what we recommend 
is when somebody's onboarding a worker and if that's if it's somebody in person we'll then sit down with them and do it and if it's uh, someone in another country do a do a call and share your screen and just show them exactly you doing as much as you can like step by step walking through exactly what you want them to do and then we recommend people make a video like use loom or screencastify and make a video and show them step by step so they actually have that resource to go back to. And then even build out a document that, again, lays it down step by step. You're sort of training them in three times, but it's just super, super effective. And I've, I've worked with, I've hired lots of people over the years, and I'm the type of person where I sometimes rush it. And the times, because I'm busy and I've got, I'm looking ahead, and the times when I don't invest that time to train the worker is the times when it doesn't go well. So yeah, I think the biggest thing is just really slowing down and investing the time. Even though the person, if you're outsourcing, it may not seem like a lot of money. And so it's sort of tempting to just set up a document and provide it to them and say, okay, this is what, this is what I want you to do. Because it's not a big financial investment, but that doesn't mean that you still shouldn't invest that time to show them exactly what you want. And that's when you, that's when you get the best results. And I've seen, I've seen incredible results. Like a lot of people have, have read the four hour work week and they hear about how Tim Ferriss talks about being able to like outsource essentially your whole business to somebody. And it's incredible. Like we have so many clients that have started so, so busy. And if they really slow down and take time to put the system in place, I've seen, yeah, people get to the point where they can, they can essentially manage a profitable business in, in an hour a day or yeah, a couple hours a week type of thing. So it's worth taking the time up front really is, is to invest in that person. I was watching some of the onboarding videos your your team sent me, which reiterates what you you just said about taking the time. And yeah. I, I saw the example you put together with uh, one of your e-commerce clients. And I feel like e-commerce is a really great place where this kind of outsourcing can really benefit you. And Tim Ferriss was an example too. He had that nutrition yeah. supplements business and e-commerce business. Because and I think this is what really got me though in the example you gave. It's I understand you can outsource customer service and I understand you can outsource web development and perhaps create creation of media, graphics, social media, and even, you know, people to post that social media and set up your calendar. But then for a lot of e-commerce sites, uh, I'd say the majority, the main engine for sales is some kind of paid advertising. And that's an area that either the founder has become proficient at running their own paid ad campaigns or somehow has managed to have a budget to, to really hire the best people. But in the example you gave, I was quite impressed that you were able to place with them a person to take over running the ad campaigns. And I like the way at the start it was, you know, here's how I do it now and this works. So just do this. But then the contractor was able to actually, you know, learn that system and then start doing it better than the actual founder of the company. And when someone is doing something that generates more sales for you, and you, you know, you wake up having made more money and you weren't turning all the dials to bring in those customers. That's a real breakthrough moment, I think, for anyone. Like that, that, that really yeah. shows where you've got a business that is well and truly an entity separate from yourself. And that's a, that's a special place to be in, I think. Uh, for me, it's always been more organic traffic has been that kind of vehicle. Yeah. But if you can hire talented people to run paid campaigns and so on, especially at the rates you're talking about, you know, you can experiment with this and only spend a couple hundred dollars and have already put in quite a few hours. So yeah. I think it's a great example. Yeah, it's all about like having faith, having faith in the process, which is hard. Like if you've never outsourced before, like I get, I've, I've been sort of, I've been there where I'm like, okay, I don't think I'm going to be able to outsource these tasks. 
but like having faith in the faith in the process and then also realizing like these like these people are like they're they're people who have gone to university who have taken a four or five year degree and and they're capable of a lot if you just if you just invest the time in them and then you have some faith to let them make some mistakes but also learn the results can be incredible so enrique is is such a good example because as i say like he started with jeb as a virtual assistant and now like he he can literally run our business like Jeb and I got together uh, back in November for a month and we were just spent basically that month trying to focus on, okay, what, what are the next steps for us to grow the business? And Enrique was able to run the day-to-day operations totally by himself. And I remember sitting with him when I was handing over the bookkeeping to him because I was becoming a fairly big task. And I remember sitting down with him to train him. And I said to him, like, oh, like you seem to be picking this up pretty quickly. And he's like, yeah, he's like, I took you, I, I went to like a he's like, I took this in school. And I'm like, what, what did you take in school again? He's like, yeah, six year business degree. And I'm like, oh my God, he's like, yeah, he's better educated than I am. Of yeah. course stuff is not, is doable for him. So I think, yeah, when people, when people really like sort of trust the process and, and have faith in the worker, it can be super, super impressive. Mm-hmm. And as you said, it's such a good feeling when you, when you get a business operating where it's not reliant on you, it's, it's the best feeling in the world. Mm-hmm. All right, one more question then, sure. uh, John. What, what do you do right now? I, it, it sounds like you know you, you've handed off a lot of this to Enrique. Um, you still meet with Jeb to plan future things, but what's what's a day in the life of, of John Miles right now? Yeah, yeah. So it sort of varies, but a big thing that I still spend a lot of time on is doing calls with clients. Um, so that's if they're if they're interested in our services, but they're sort of unsure because I have a lot of experience. I've been hiring remotely for 12 years, I can be a pretty good, or I try to be a good resource for people to, to just get on the call and say, and they can tell me about their business and I can say, okay, yeah, these are the things, these are the, like the low hanging fruit that I see in the place that you can start. And then everybody who, yeah, everyone who, who hires a worker from us, I send them uh, an email and I say, Hey, do you want to book a call with me just to, yeah, just to talk about sort of like the best practices and all that sort of thing. I'm, I'm happy to jump on the phone. So I spend a lot of my day doing those calls and we try and do that to, to sort of differentiate ourselves from the upworks of the world so that people know that they've really got that support. A lot of the people that work with us don't, haven't hired workers before. So it's just nice to know that, okay, if they've got questions or things aren't going the way that they expect, they've got somebody to fall back on. Mm-hmm. So I, that's, that's a lot of my days just on the phone and then also uh, it, it, with clients and then a lot of the days on the phone with, uh, with Jeb just saying, okay, what are we going to do next? What's our next, our next plans? And we've always mm-hmm. got... Like every entrepreneur, you've got grand plans and trying to figure out which ones are worth spending the time on. I think it's worth mentioning before we go too that you you guys offer a white label service. You you, you got my entrepreneurial brain going. I was like, oh, I could start a, a freelancing outsourcing service to go with my coaching business because it's a yeah. natural fit. So how does that work exactly? Just for those who who might be thinking, I actually have an audience who I want to promote this to, and sure, I can send people to to you, John, and iWorker. But if I want to do a next level partnership, I can white label what you guys do and sell it under my own brand. Is that right? That's exactly right. So we do, we do a lot of that. Actually, if you search white label virtual assistants, I think we're last I checked, we're in number one results on Google. So yeah, we do a fair bit of that. And that's because our prices are so low. So yeah, like it, it, it allows some room if people want to mark it up. And so we, we take care of the recruiting side. We take care of the customer service we take care of the billing. So it really is super, super hands off and, and really passive income for people if they want to do that. So yeah, we have, we actually have some, some white label partners that are making over $1,500 US a week 
and we do, as I say, we do everything. It's, it's ultimately, it's like the ultimate passive income. Mm. So do you also do the onboarding calls as well? Like, like yeah, yeah, I, everything, everything. Wow. So I say that, so white, when people think of white label, they think, oh, I've got to have a brand and all that, but they don't like you, some of our white label partners, it's just, they have an audience and, and they introduce us. So that if they're talking to one, like business coaches, if they're talking to a client who maybe could use a virtual assistant, they'll just make an introduction by email and we take it from there. I say to people, like if you meet somebody at a conference and you don't even know their name, if, but you introduce us by email, then, then that works. Okay, awesome. Where do we find you, John? What, what's the, the obvious places to go? Just iWorker, that's it. <laughs> I, I don't do, I, I'm on LinkedIn, but yeah, really just, uh, yeah, people can connect with us on, on iWorker. Okay, iWorker.co. So you're not a you're not a social media influencer. You don't have to head not, to you. No, no, I'm not. A, I'm not an influencer. No, no. I like to, as I say, I like to stay focused and just, yeah. So, so growing the website is is where we spend our time. Okay, I, I guess I didn't kind of follow up with that. What you do in a day in your life? It's not just work. Like, are you, what else do you do in 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 Colombia? Like, are you just kind of hanging out? <laughs> you know? Yeah, I work. I work seven days a week. Like, I, I was working on Christmas. I work every day. Okay. Uh, at this point, because I, I I love what we're doing. Like to me, to me, it's it's exciting to be able to to connect. It's exciting to be able to connect people with work that so they just didn't have the opportunity to have. Like, I receive a lot of nice nice notes from workers on how it's changed their life. We've had a lot of workers been able being able to save enough money to flee Venezuela and having that, having that income, that reliable income source. So they don't, they don't have to flee and then worry about finding a job when they leave. So it just gives them some confidence and some reliability. So for me, like that's, that's what drives me at the moment. It's just, it's exciting to be able to make those connections and help business owners. So yeah, I spend, (laughs) I spend too much time working, but yeah, when, when I'm not working, I just just hanging out with friends and uh, I'm in a relationship with somebody here in Colombia. So just hanging out with her as well. Okay, awesome. John, thanks for doing what you do and, and also sharing some of the background story behind your, your own life and iWorker's story. Uh, I, I hope the business keeps growing. I think it's fantastic that you're helping some people in uh, tough situations around the world. And, and clearly, they're talented people who could help a lot of other people if they can just find and be connected uh, with, with people around the world, connecting with entrepreneurs. So I love that. Um, yeah, keep up the good work. And let, obviously, we'll be in touch, but I uh, hope some of the listeners uh, come, come your way as well. And and uh, can benefit and help some people with uh, their own freelancing needs, whether it's so many things, social media, copywriting, web design, sales out- outreach, pay-per-click marketing, pretty much anything it sounds like your team can potentially help with. So just, yeah, get in touch with John and and uh, good luck for the future. Thanks a lot, Yaro. This has been really cool for me, as I say. Yeah, I'm really excited that I was able to come on. So thank you. Thanks for listening to Yaro's podcast. For more episodes, visit yarrow.blog and subscribe on iTunes or Google.